Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 17th December with me Ian Welsh. Earlier this week I caught up with Andrew Wallace, CEO of UK-based human rights organisation Unseen. We talked about forced migration and modern slavery and in particular about the impacts of climate change and we also considered some things to look out for in 2022. First though is some sustainable business news. Retail giant Walmart has launched a new supply chain finance programme with Bank HSBC and Disclosure Platform CDP that aims to incentivise suppliers to set science-based emissions targets. Doing so, of course, enables Walmart to advance efforts to address its own Scope 3 emissions. The initiative is part of Walmart's supply chain emissions programme Project Gigaton, which aims to eliminate 1 billion tonnes of greenhouse gas emissions from its global supply chain by 2030 from its 2017 launch. Walmart says that so far more than 3,100 suppliers have signed up, with a total of 416 million tonnes of carbon dioxide equivalent avoided. The new supply chain finance initiatives comes with enhanced standards, tools and capacity building aimed at private brand suppliers, particularly SMEs that may not have the expertise or resources internally. The suppliers are helped to set targets and have them validated by the Science-Based Targets Initiative. They are also encouraged to achieve score thresholds in their CDP disclosures and reporting. With Walmart approval, suppliers can approach HSBC for early payment and invoices and for additional financing for sustainability-linked improvements, such as greater operational efficiencies. Elsewhere, HSBC has come into criticism following the publication of its first policy detailing how it will exit from coal financing. This was developed following a shareholder motion passed in early 2021 that compelled the bank to end coal finance in OECD countries by 2030 and in other countries by 2040. The new policy provides for the bank to reduce its coal financing exposure by 25% by 2025, increasing to 50% by 2030. Clients will be encouraged to develop their own transition plans and increasingly only able to access funding for clear energy projects. HSBC's proposals have been met with a lukewarm reaction, not least from activist group ShareAction that helped drive through the original shareholder motion. ShareAction says that there are a number of significant loopholes, including that the new HSBC policy only applies at a client level, meaning that indirect support for coal might continue. In addition, ShareAction says that there is no time-bound commitment to divest from companies without transition plans or information on what makes up a strong or weak plan. The European Commission has set out its plans for the EU to increase removal of carbon from the environment. The Commission says that removing and storing carbon from the atmosphere, oceans and coastal wetlands is essential to achieve the EU's legally binding commitment to become climate neutral by 2050. The proposal set out support for carbon farming, which involves implementing practices that are known to improve the rate at which CO2 is removed from the atmosphere, and for better rewards for farmers that promote carbon sequestration and biodiversity protection. The aim is for EU carbon farming initiatives to contribute 42 million tonnes of CO2 storage by 2030. The Commission also says that it will engage with stakeholders so that at least 20% of carbon use in chemical and plastic products will come from sustainable non-fossil sources by 2030. By the end of 2022, the Commission hopes to have proposals for a framework for the certification of carbon removal based on robust accounting rules with appropriate monitoring and verification procedures. Details of Innovation Forum's Spring Event Series are being released. From the 26th to 28th of April, we'll be holding the next Sustainable Apparel and Textiles Conference. We'll be focusing on how brands can transform supply chains, scale circularity and drive positive social impacts. The Innovation Forum team are working on the 2022 speaker lineup. News on that will be released very shortly. But among the 50 panellists who join us in 2021 were representatives of Puma, Hugo Boss, Nike, CNA and Textile Exchange. 
From the 10th to 12th of May, we'll be holding our Europe-focused Future of Food event. We'll be discussing how food sector businesses can lead a just transition towards transparent, regenerative and resilient food systems. If you are quick, the launch discount of £200 per ticket applies through to the 17th of December. Full details of how to register are online. And the next in our Climate Action Conference series will be held from the 7th to 9th of June, where we will be discussing how to engage supply chains in tackling scope 3 emissions and the route to net zero. Previous climate conferences have featured experts from the likes of Tesco, PepsiCo, Unilever, Walmart and Danone. Stay tuned to the Innovation Forum website for details of next year's participants as they are announced, and of course to register for the event. And we're planning a return to meeting face-to-face with our Future of Food US-focused event in Minneapolis on the 14th and 15th of June. Full details have come. Keep an eye on the Innovation Forum website. A few days ago, I caught up with Andrew Wallace, CEO of Unseen and an old friend of the podcast. We talked about some of the emerging forced migration hotspots and the challenge for business in terms of human rights risks linked to climate change. We're going to talk a little bit about some of your concerns around changing forced labour and forced migration risks. But why don't you start off by just reminding us all who Unseen are and what you guys do. So Unseen is a anti-modern slavery and human trafficking charity headquartered in the UK. We do five main things. We work directly with victims of trafficking that are identified within the UK. Secondly, we work with all the major statutory and blue light agencies. So that's everything from local police all the way up to the National Crime Agency and Border Force to help them understand victims better, identify victims and ensure that victims get access to the services that they require. We run the UK's Modern Slavery Helpline. We work with businesses increasingly now around the globe, helping them tackle issues of transparency and modern slavery within their supply chains and business practices. And we take all of that frontline work and expertise and try and work with governments around the globe to help them shape better policy and legislation. Okay, so given all of that then, where are your current areas of concern around forced labour and modern slavery? I mean, we've been through an extraordinary two years, the pandemic which we have seen at best shoddy business practices, i.e. workers not being paid in factories or being kicked out of factories with no furlough payment. Obviously, we had the Boohoo scandal here in the UK as well. But then on top of that, we're still seeing forced labour across a variety of industries. So in some senses, things haven't changed in terms of the major risk areas and, and sectors that are vulnerable. So agriculture, construction, distribution, logistics, the care sector, cleaning factories, fishing apparel, All those areas we know have problems. I think increasingly in the last 24 months, we've seen the finance sector become more aware of the issues. The huge profits from modern slavery at some point flow through the financial sectors of the world. And so there's much more focus on them looking for those areas. Pandemic has driven that. At the same time, it's also driven things more underground because obviously focus has been on dealing with the pandemic and not dealing with forced labor abuses unless they really come to the fore. And as we're coming out of the pandemic, or we thought we were coming out of the pandemic before this latest variant Omicron is coming through, we're starting to begin to unpack what happened to victims during the pandemic, because they disappeared from some of the sort of more in-your-face sort of hidden in plain sight industries that we had. So how have they been exploited? And we're just seeing that trickle through and picking up that information from uh, victims that have been identified. And also, as I think the world has greater capacity to focus on more things, we'll start to see the numbers ticking upwards again. We've already seen that in the UK in terms of during the pandemic, we saw a levelling off in terms of the number of victims that were being identified. We started to come out of of the pandemic. We saw those numbers increasing by a third again. Have we reached a baseline where we're saying we're effectively finding victims? No, I don't think we are. 
we've still got a lot more looking for it, both here in the UK and internationally, uh, to find the number of victims. We're talking in mid-December, of course, hence your discussion around the latest variant of COVID-19 that's impacting everybody. In the context of all of that then, how are modern slavery risks changing? Are the drivers the same as they always have been? I think fundamentally they are. I think the way to understand this issue is that, in essence, it's a supply and demand industry. And so you have a supply of vulnerable people. And on the demand side, we've still not seen a change in terms of the demand for cheap goods, services and labour. Now, that has also been exacerbated as a result of COVID and all the known issues we've got with supply chains. That puts pressure down the system. Pressure creates the environment for exploitation and bad actors to play. And therefore, it just continues the cycle. So in essence, what we're talking about is an illicit trade. It's a commodity trade. The human being is the commodity. And that commodity is bought and sold in order to extract profit from the equation. We look forward into 2022. I think the ILO are going to bring out new figures in terms of what they think the global numbers are in terms of forced labor and modern slavery victims. And all the indications are that we're going to see a significant uptick in those numbers. I think the model stays the same. It's a good business model, in quotes, that enables us to exploit people. All we see in terms of variations are new areas in which people can be inserted into the supply chain and business practices for them to be exploited. The level of sophistication and resourcing that those that are doing the exploiting remains undiminished. Where, though, in the globe are the main forced migration hotspots now? Some of them will be obvious, and some of them are just a continuation of what we see. So I'll work my way around the globe. We've obviously got the migratory direction of travel from South America, Central America, up into North America. And through that, we then see people being inserted, especially around forced labour, into the agricultural and factory settings in the U.S., around that. And we just had a major case in the last few weeks that was uncovered in Georgia, which was precisely that thing, that people were being smuggled into the US and then obviously vulnerable to further exploitation. And that was within the Georgia agricultural sector around that. As we come east, we've got migratory routes up from Africa into Europe. That is still going at pace. But there are particular areas of hotspots around that. So obviously the, the worsening situation, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Sudan, South Sudan is creating, so it's a conflict situation that is, is forcing people to move. Once they're having to move under those circumstances, they become vulnerable. We continue a little bit further east. We see ongoing problems from eastern Africa. So sort of Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, across into the Gulf states, that's still going on. That's not diminished in any shape or form. Then obviously we've all seen the news that's come out of Afghanistan. And I think, you know, when you see anything like Afghanistan, I look at that and go, okay, what does that look like in 12 to 24 months in terms of victims that are being identified within Western Europe? And we're already starting to see that. Conflict drives people, people on the move become vulnerable to exploiters and traffickers in that whole place. And then as we keep going a little bit further east, and we've seen this over the last two years, the ongoing situation in China, especially around Uyghurs, isn't just in Xinjiang, it's that forced labor exploitation of Uyghurs right across the Chinese manufacturing base and right across the, the geographical region of China as well. And then I think the other thing is the beginning impact of climate change that is forcing people to move, and that is then forcing people into situations of exploitation. Yes, it struck me that some of the drivers that are changing around forced migration and modern slavery risks, obviously conflict is still there, it's always been there, but it's certainly something that seems more relevant increasingly is, of course, climate change. For you then, what's the extent that you're seeing the links between climate change, enforced migration and the resultant forced labour? How are these risks being more appreciated? There are a number of NGOs 
that wrote to the COP26 president, Alok Sharma, to say, look, there is clear evidence now beginning to emerge in terms of the direct correlation between climate change, enforcing migration, that enforced migration leads to greater vulnerability. Those that are vulnerable leads to potential trafficking victims and exploited people. If you like, it's an early warning that's been given. There is now clear documented evidence of that happening. I think the thing that we're concerned about is even if you look at the conservative figures in terms of we hit the 1.5% change and that's at risk, you know, the global estimates are that it will create about a billion people that are forced to move as a result of climate change. Again, even though I can't yet give you, okay, out of that billion, what percentage are vulnerable to exploitation? We don't know that level of data yet. What we do know is that there will be significant numbers affected by that. If we go past 1.5, then those numbers start to get really scary and we're going all the way up to 3 billion. It's the acceptance that we're going to have a greater level of the global population that's on the move that is vulnerable to exploiters. Because what we've seen time and time again in the last 10, 15, 20 years is exploiters move into situations where people are vulnerable and look to prey on that vulnerability. You know, whether it's a typhoon in the Philippines or a disaster in Haiti or people fleeing a war zone, often the very first people that are on the ground are the exploiters, that it's not the Red Cross or government or military. They're in there because they know that they've got a ready supply of people that they can exploit. So all these NGOs wrote and said, look, in all of these discussions around climate, don't lose sight of the fact that it isn't just the environment, it is also people that are vulnerable. And then on the flip side of that is, I think, around COP26, widening sort of discussions around ESG, you know, this mantra of protecting people and planet is really important, that the two are interlinked. You know, wherever you look where you have massive environmental degradation, you also have exploitation of people in situations of forced labor as well. So it's drawing those two things together and, and saying, look, you can't deal with these issues in isolation. We've got to holistically deal with them in order that we don't find ourselves in an even greater mess. So just to clarify, if, if we keep our temperature rise to the 1.5 degrees Celsius level that everyone's hoping for, that still results in 1 billion people being displaced through the impacts of climate change. Looking forward to 2022 then, what are you looking out for? A number of things. Let me start with ESG. I think up until now, I've always referred to the S as somewhat slippery. I think we'll start seeing some embryonic metrics around that coming into play. That's important because it's of primary importance to investors. We're part of an initiative that we've just announced that we hope to see in 2022, which is called Million Makers, which is how do we get the authentic voice of workers at scale to report on you know, your business is saying it's doing X, Y, and Z, but actually what's really going on around that? So that aggregated, scaled up, anonymized information from the, the factory floor, so to speak, around that. So I think ESG is, is going to rise to the top around that. We've just had the UK's leadership on G7, and we had, obviously, this year, the G7 summit in Cornwall. And out of that, there was a commitment to look at forced labor and tackle that as a G7. And obviously, the trade ministers of the G7 are working on that, and that work will flow through into 2022. We've just seen announced the EU is going to bring forward mandatory human rights due diligence legislation and also a commitment to US Tariff Act style legislation, i.e. not allowing goods tainted by forced labour into the EU market space. So I think that will have big impacts. The UK has obviously announced that it's going to upgrade Section 54 of the Modern Slavery Act. It's talking about penalties. It's also got modern slavery strategic review, so it wants to significantly upgrade what it's doing there. And it is also looking at mandatory human rights due diligence, Tariff Act, as well as a significant upgrade to Section 54. It's already said it's going to do fines. 
I think the pushback there is if you're going to do fines, make it significant. So somewhere between one and 5% of worldwide turnover is a fine around that. My push to the government is fine. If you announce these fines, you've actually got then got to implement them because you haven't done it with Section 54 so far. But also look at other things in order to bring about compliance with the legislation, things like direct disqualification. And then I think as we look globally, you're seeing what I call, and I'm going to trademark the name, the slow-moving tsunami of transparency legislation working its way around the globe. Canada is bringing forth modern slavery, which is transparency and supply chain legislation. Pressure is growing on the New Zealand government to do a modern slavery act. Next year is, I think, the 10th anniversary of the UNGP, so there's going to be a lot of focus on that. And then next year, we're eight years away from ending modern slavery, according to SDG 8.7. So I think that shrinking timeline is bringing focus because the world, when it gets to 2030, will be going, actually, the question is how far are we going to overshoot? The discussions are changing to how can we rapidly increase the effectiveness of the response against modern slavery globally. So I think more and more focus is coming. How about the the World Cup? How much of a problem is FIFA going to have in its hands around the Qatar World Cup, do you think? I think FIFA has a huge credibility problem. A, there are still unanswered questions on how Qatar was awarded it in the first place. B, I think that the ongoing known labour violations that took place in Qatar the Kafala system, which still isn't sorted, even though Qatar said we're going to resolve it, it's still not resolved. The ongoing labour exploitation that might the migratory workforce are still encountering in, in Qatar. And so I think for FIFA, you know, my question to them is, look, you back initiatives like Taking the Knee, which is about correcting racial injustice within society and within football, but why doesn't that extend to the people that are building the stadiums and the infrastructure in order that the FIFA World Cup can take place? So I think FIFA have got huge questions to ask of itself around that. There's two ways of looking at it. You know, do you say a plague on all your houses and boycott and everything else around that? Or, and I think this is the line that FIFA will probably take, and I'm not their PR and marketing <laughs> department around this, but look, all this focus on Qatar has delivered some change. The pushback is, yes, but is it significant? Will it be sustained? And what about the lives lost and the lives blighted in order to deliver this World Cup? So I think FIFA faces a pretty torrid year. You know, I hope to see from footballers the same amount of focus on the issues that they are going to encounter by being there. It presents a quandary for people, doesn't it? Do I go? And if by going, I'm endorsing it. Do I boycott? And Ian, you're a Scot. Do you go? This could be the only time in your lifetime that Scotland ever get near a World Cup. Um, yeah, so there's all sorts of questions around it. Steady. I think Scotland are now, it's a whole new dawn for Scotland in terms of yes. their qualifying for World Cups. But you are absolutely right. There is a interesting conversations to be had, no doubt, around attendance at the World Cup towards the end of 2022. You mentioned the SDGs, which of course have within them a pledge to eliminate modern slavery by 2030. Is that in fact the right focus? Should we not just accept that modern slavery is something that's never going to go away and we should all just focus on finding it? No, I think we need that moonshot ambition in terms of can we eliminate it? When the SDG was first announced, 2030 seemed like a long way off. I thought that's ambitious, probably overly ambitious. This is a generational problem to resolve. But I think you've got to have that ambition of saying, can we create a world in which modern slavery doesn't exist? I passionately believe that we can. I think there's systemic changes that need to happen, primarily when it comes to forced labour, which is businesses need to move from this extractive, exploitative profit model that enables forced labour to happen to a sustainable profit model that doesn't harm people and doesn't harm planet. That's a seismic shift. And investors are beginning to wake up to it. I think COP26 is going to drive that more. 
We have to get rid of things that don't help in that process. Like quarterly reporting is a disaster. It just breeds short-termism. The levels of profitability that are expected from companies are not achievable without exploiting people and planet. And so we need those structural changes to take place and then to recognize that they take a while to work through the system. But we need more disruptor industries and businesses coming to the fore. You know, we need more businesses like Unilever basically saying to the markets, we're not going to quarterly report because we think it just drives bad behavior. We need disruptor industries within sectors to prove that you can deliver a profitable business that isn't harming people on planet and that is changing things for the better so that there are those models around that. But then we need investors to go, we are going to switch our investments into those companies that are doing the right thing and can demonstrate an evidence that they're doing the right thing and switch away. We need governments to, because they're the biggest procurers in the land, to precisely do that and to hold on to their values, You know, which we saw they were abandoned when we went through the COVID. We were prepared to buy PPE from factories that were known to be using forced labor. Values and statements of intent are only as good when they're tested in the real world and in the, the crucible of a, of a pandemic. So often I, you know, I look at these value statements and go, well, great, but until you live them and breathe them and work them out, then they're nothing more than ink on a page. But we do need to have that moonshot and then we need to work really, really hard to deliver it. Well, let's hope some of these things come to pass. Bent, thank you very much for the list of things that we should look out for in the coming 12 months. For now, Andrew Wallace, CEO Unseen, thank you very much. Thank you, Ian. Innovation Forum's website is, as ever, the place to go for all the usual insights, analysis and podcasts. Do look out for the recording of a special webinar we hosted case studying the Maya Ndombe Red Plus project in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh. Until next week, when I'll be reviewing some of the highlights of the year. Goodbye. <laughs>